Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I've been surprised over the last few years how every race I've covered just seems to be driven by the, the national conversation. Yeah, especially local officials were upset that it had turned into a conversation that they felt like had nothing to do with Northeast Ohio. It's August. It's over 90 degrees in D.C., and there aren't a lot of elections happening, except in Ohio. The results are in for two Ohio special elections primaries. Ohio. 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 It really is interesting seeing how this played out in Ohio, right? We were all watching this. And even though these were two tiny little primaries, they became the subject of national attention. But at the same time, you know, they both leaned into it, and both campaigns played a role in nationalizing it. We're all looking to this spattering of races around the country, and there really aren't that many of them, to test our various hypotheses about where American politics is headed and what may happen in next year's midterms. So that's why everyone who thinks and talks about American politics was focused this week on Ohio. In the Democratic Party, you at least have a battle going on about who's going to control it. Chantel Brown it's escalating tonight. And it's about ideology. Obviously compared voting for Biden to eating a bowl of human excrement. Sorry <laughs> to remind you about that. Um, so on that okay. note... Uh, that's funny. All right. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. I am in uh, the great state of Ohio. And this is Ali Mutnick. I'm a campaign reporter for Politico. The simplest way to boil these two primary races down is that the Biden candidate won the Democratic primary. The establishment strikes back is like really what I think embodies the Ohio 11 race. And the Trump candidate won the Republican primary. Fealty to Trump is still the most important and animating driver in the Republican Party. There are two big reasons that these local congressional races that not that long ago really did turn on local issues have been nationalized. Both of them have to do with the media. One is the hollowing out of local media around the country. Both Ali and I noticed this trend. This is my like take on, on the nationalization of media, but like the whole top floor of the museum back when it was open was front pages from all 50 states and a bunch of different countries. The museum was a news museum in D.C. that was founded over two decades ago, and it closed recently. Anyway, the outside of the museum was decorated on a daily basis with a showcase of that day's front page news from newspapers from across the country. And more and more of those front pages would be changing to be either like Gannett or McClatchy. Like local news is just being gobbled up by these like bigger national parent companies. And then that also hurts that. So like you'll still have a paper, but it'll be, you know, have a big USA Today insert and, and less local reporters on the ground. And on Twitter and other social media platforms, you'd think these two Ohio races were presidential level contests. 
You make a good point. Spending less time on Twitter is is always helpful in understanding a race. Why is that? What does Twitter do as a reporter? Like, what kind of, <laughs> what, what do you have to be careful of? That it doesn't pan out on the ground. Yeah. I mean, and I also think if you're focused on looking to see what people think on Twitter and you feel like that's the whole picture, you're missing what, uh, you know, this whole class of people who would never go on Twitter feel. And so in races, like, I just, I don't know that Twitter takes the temperature of it. Um, it maybe takes the temperature of donors, I feel like, and online donors and, like, uh, and, and money. So sometimes the ugliest races happen in primaries. You see two different futures for the political parties, and you get fights that feel personal and kind of uncomfortable, like, like siblings in the same family fighting. Allie, I want you to tell us about this special election in Ohio and the two visions of the Democratic Party that were represented here. There's always a temptation, of course, to extrapolate too much from these races. But tell us the case for extrapolating and maybe the case against reading too much into this. That's a good question. So this was billed, rightly or wrongly, as the Democratic Civil War. And, you know, the the split between the two candidates in terms of their endorsers was very clear. On one side, you've got Nina Turner, a face of Bernie Sanders' two presidential campaigns. I am here today to urge you to elect Nina Turner as your next member of Congress. Thank you. She has close personal relationships with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, mentored them before they were even elected to Congress. The actor Danny Glover was at her watch party. The rapper Killer Mike, you know, every big name on the left came out to this district for Nina Turner and for, you know, an, an advocate of the progressive cause and the progressive movement. On the other side was Chantel Brown, who embodies the party establishment in a lot of ways. She was endorsed by Hillary Clinton. She was endorsed by nearly every leading member of the CVC, including House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. Ticket for me, the highest ranking African-American in Congress. Chantel Brown would work with President Biden and her fellow Democrats to get things done for you. And she was endorsed by a lot of pro-Israel Democrats. This district is the largest Jewish population in the state. So the two competing visions of the party were really do fit into this establishment versus progressive dichotomy. What we can take away from the result and Chantel Brown's victory is that the Democratic establishment is popular. And in the Biden era, it does really seem like progressives have had a harder time making a case against Joe Biden, right? The party establishment got rid of Trump. Joe Biden is the like consummate establishment Democrat. He's in office. He's fairly popular. He did you know, better than a lot of Democrats in swing districts when you go back and look at the 2020 results. And so I think progressives are having a harder time articulating why, why do you need to throw the bums out now than they did in the Trump era. So I think that's a, a fair lesson. But on the don't take away too much from this, Nina Turner is a very unique candidate in that she was on the trail for Bernie Sanders for two presidential campaigns. She is, was a, a regular presence on cable news, and she's very outspoken, and she says what she thinks, and she's not afraid to use colorful language. And there's a really long trail of her saying things about the Democratic Party, things about President Biden, and things about Hillary Clinton that the ads and the money that came in against her, you know, they, they took her own words. She trashed Joe Biden. You got two bowls of in front of you. 
And and I don't think there's going to be a candidate again with so much real um, and and a trove of of tape to use to cut ads against her and to paint her as someone who you know is, is not welcoming of the Democratic Party, is not supportive of the Democratic Party. Ali, can you just tell us what it was like on the ground covering this race? So much of American politics right now is focused on what's going on in Washington. You know, it's not campaign season. So these special elections tend to get a huge flood of national attention. Set the scene a little bit about what your reporting trip was like and what, how, how sort of the politics of Washington are being refracted in these local races right now. It's been a while since I've been out on the trail. We had a, like a nice window here where COVID was kind of dying down. And yeah, I mean, both events, and I was out here, you know, both on election night and a little bit before, both both campaigns had such well-attended events. People seemed really, really engaged. And Nina Turner's events with AOC, she had four different rallies spread out throughout the day. And I went to a few of those. And, you know, the first three were you know, close to hundreds in attendance in the you know, 100, 200 range and just a ton of excitement. And it really felt like people made the connection between Nina Turner and AOC and the squad and, and what the squad was doing in Washington. And at Nina Turner's watch party, people were talking about the win that Cori Bush got on the eviction moratorium and, you know, pointing to that as an example of what progressives can do in Congress. So it really did feel like people leaned into the kind of nationalized nature of this race. And Chantel Brown had, you know, the majority of CBC leadership come out for her last weekend, Jim Clyburn, Benny Thompson, Joyce Beatty. And and I I think they both brought the na- big national names into the district, and Chantel had to chip away at Nina's lead. And a big part of chipping away at Nina's lead was stoking this Democratic Civil War argument and getting people interested in supporting her and getting people involved. Since it's just the two of us talking, what is your favorite story from the trip that didn't make it into any of your coverage? I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll leave this nameless, but when I was chatting with uh, a Brown staffer, he had started in June, so kind of well into the race. And the first week he started was when the Nina Turner poll came out. And this is her poll from uh, Tolchin showing her at 50% and Chantel Brown at, I think, 15%. And he was like recounting that moment for me where he got on the ground and was kind of like, you know, what am I doing? <laughs> This race is is not winnable. And so I think that just showed the trajectory of like how much of a lead Chantel Brown had to overcome because, you know, by the end, her polling had her up. They didn't release this polling, but like she was up several points by the end. And I think they knew what way it was headed. Let's talk a little bit about the Congressional Black Caucus's involvement in this race. These were two African-American candidates, obviously, but the CBC took sides uh, tell us about how that played out. Yeah, that was an incredibly contentious part of the race because there's been a policy that, you know, when there are several black candidates in a race, the, the CBC political arm stays out of it. This is not like a hardline policy, but more of a general trend. And, and some of its members have said that in the past. This was an open seat race between two black women and they 
didn't just endorse, but they very heavily put their thumb on the scale to the extent that they can. And, and I think the CBC is really well respected in this district. And I do think that made a difference. So the voters in this district, they like they know what the CBC is. That's not just an inside Washington term to a lot of voters. So yes and no. Older voters in the district are really familiar with the CBC. Uh, I would say, you know, younger voters, it, it made less of an impact. But um, there are definitely older voters who know that this is a district with a long legacy of uh, influential Congressional Black Caucus members. So before Marsha Fudge, who's the incumbent, and she vacated the seat to become HUD secretary, uh, there was Stephanie Tubbs-Jones and Lou Stokes, a founding member of the CBC, represented Northeast Ohio for 30 years, very popular in the district, founded the group. And so people know those names, and they know that uh, Chantel was presenting herself as a continuation of that line of leadership. And Marsha Fudge, because she's in Biden's administration, did not endorse, but she made very clear that Chantel was her protege, that she encouraged her to get into politics. And Marsha Fudge's mom cut an, a, a very now infamous ad for Chantel where she said, Marsha Fudge can't endorse, but I can. Marsha now serves in President Biden's cabinet, so she can't endorse in the race for Congress. But I can. So the the underlying thread between the the battle and why the CBC decided to endorse is that the CBC has been has seen more progressive primary challengers in recent years, especially since 2018. And in 2020, Cory Bush actually ousted Lacey Clay from his St. Louis district, black majority district. Lacey Clay is the son of a founder of the CBC. And Joyce Beatty, the current chairwoman, uh, had a, a progressive challenger. Yvette Clark has had a challenger. There's a really intense fear in the CBC of being ousted by progressive challengers. And it's not just because they like being in Congress and they want to stay in Congress, even as some of these kind of younger black progressive candidates win open seats and join the CBC, it's changed the dynamic. The CBC is a historic group that prides itself on unity, on its ability to act as a block. And now that there's more difference, both in ideology, because some of the, the younger members are more progressive, but also style, um, they're more critical of leadership. They don't necessarily defer to seniority. And so there's this kind of competing view of what the CBC should be. And Nina Turner really embodied for them, you know, someone that was going to come in and, and hurt their unity and break up their ability to speak with one voice. And Jim Clyburn got so heavily involved in the race because Nina Turner and, and Killer Mike in a conversation that they had during a campaign event in June had suggested that, you know, he wasn't doing enough to trade on his endorsement of Biden. He wasn't doing enough to extract more gains from Biden. And that really angered Jim Clyburn. And that was part of why he cut an ad for Chantel Brown and why he came into the district and why, um, you know, they got involved in, in the way that they did. So there's a bigger kind of question about the CBC in their involvement. That is really interesting. And I feel like Killer Mike and Clyburn have a little bit of history as because Killer Mike has been a longtime Bernie supporter and campaigned heavily in South Carolina. I think the Clyburn backed presidential candidates have always uh, defeated the Killer Mike candidates in those presidential primaries in South Carolina. So Clyburn, uh, this is like three for three uh, with with him against uh, Killer Mike candidates. <laughs> yeah. And this was, I mean, he really came in and endorsed someone, Chantel, when she was behind and helped her get over the finish line. So he definitely earned the, the king-making power here as well. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. 
Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So one interesting dynamic that was playing out in Washington on the same day as this primary is that Cori Bush, uh, known as a member of the squad, uh, very prominent uh, black woman, progressive in the House. I'm elated and um, I'm overwhelmed, you know, because just the thought that so many people right now, millions of people, you know, will not be forced out on the streets. She was essentially leading activists to push the Biden administration on this issue of the evictions moratorium. Got a ton of attention by staying overnight on the Capitol steps. She couldn't literally sleep on the Capitol steps because you're, you're not allowed. So she was up for, I believe, like three nights doing this um, widespread coverage. And the Biden administration seems to have reversed course and pushed the CDC to extend this moratorium. And I noticed in the coverage of this, depending on who is writing the story, some people really emphasized the progressive activist uh, wing of the party and Cori Bush's leadership here. And others really emphasized Nancy Pelosi's behind-the-scenes conversations with the White House. So even in these stories of like, who's actually getting things done in Washington, you see the, the, the sort of split in the Democratic Party playing out. I'm just sort of curious if you see this playing out a lot more in, in Congress. I think it, it actually played out a bit in this race. Cori Bush was supposed to be campaigning for Nina Turner the weekend that she stayed out over um, the Capitol steps, and she couldn't come because she was you know, trying to make a, uh, a statement in D.C. And that was repeatedly mentioned at Nina Turner's victory party on Tuesday night, that this is why we need people in Congress like Cori Bush, like Nina Turner, because they are pushing the Biden administration to get these gains. Now, the flip side of this on Chantel Brown's side, she stressed that Nina Turner had made too many enemies. She said, I'm not going to have to start my time in Congress with a long list of apologies to people I've offended. I've got good relationships. I can go in and get things done. Look at these people I know. Look at Jim Clyburn, Joyce Beatty, Greg Meeks, Benny Thompson, these CBC members who have come into the district. I obviously have a good relationship with Marsha Fudge. I'm going to be effective. I'm going to be able to get things done. So I think there was still that back and forth and that question of like, what brings results in this campaign. This morning, I got an email from someone very close to Joe Biden, who made the following point. I want, to, I want you to tell me what you think of this. This person said, Chantel Brown has fewer than 20,000 Twitter followers, and Nina Turner has nearly half a million. But the AOC wing of the party now has lost the Louisiana special, where their candidate outspent the winner, the Virginia governor, New York City mayor, and now Ohio 11, where Nina Turner and her name ID started with a 35-point lead and outspent Chantel Brown. This person goes on 
and the the DCCC polling showing that Joe Biden's agenda, particularly the infrastructure bill, is the strongest argument in frontline districts, and it should be a warning. So this person's clearly arguing that kind of Biden-style moderate candidates are crushing it in these elections, and that is the way for Democrats to keep the House next year. Is this uh, a little too much spin, or is this a real trend here that should have the moderates uh, declaring that they're like winning the Civil War right now? Okay, so I I actually have, because this is a point made a lot on Twitter that Twitter is not real life. Yeah. Nina Turner had all of this Twitter energy, but Chantel Brown had the support on the ground. Yeah. Um, that Nina Turner had all the money, but her ideas weren't popular. I think there's two problems with that line of thinking. One is that, yes, Nina Turner raised more money than Chantel Brown, but there was a lot of outside money in this race. And you know, Nina Turner mentioned it, the uh, Democratic majority for Israel super PAC spent close to a million dollars on TV ads against Nina Turner. Chantel Brown's fundraising did pick up towards the end. And Nina Turner spent a lot of her money on TV very early in the race. She went up in late April for an August 3rd primary. And I think, you know, there's you could make the argument she was trying to lock in her lead. But by the end, she was being outpointed and outspent on the air uh, by Chantel Brown and Chantel Brown allies. So I think this idea that like, even, you know, a, a financial resource can't sell these ideas is is a little unfair. I think when you look at the ads that Chantel Brown ran, and that these outside groups ran against Nina Turner, they weren't saying Nina Turner supports Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. Here's why, you know, these ideas will uh, hurt your life or hurt the way you live or why they're not good for you. They said Nina Turner is not a good soldier for the Democratic Party. Nina Turner has said mean things about Joe Biden. Nina Turner is not going to you know, get things done. And so, like, being anti-Joe Biden is not popular, but I don't know that this race proved that progressive ideas aren't popular with the base because it's really not what they attacked her on. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm hesitant to draw too big of a, a takeaway on, like, the policy proposals. Yeah, it, se- it seems like there's not that wide a gap anymore, at least in Washington, with what Biden is, is driving policy-wise between the Sanders wing and the Biden wing, right? I mean, Sanders is the guy writing the Biden, the Biden budget in the Senate, and the White House seems pretty happy with it. And I think progressives are trying to figure out, you know, how do we fit into this Democratic Washington? Like, uh, Sean McElwee runs the, the liberal polling outfit, Data for Progress, um, you know, told me last night, Democratic voters like the Democratic Party. Progressives need to show that we support the Democratic Party living up to its true values, not trying to tear it down. I think there's a wing of the Progressive Party that envisions working with the establishment, working inside it, like you mentioned, and not blowing it up from the outside, which is uh, what a lot of Nina's past rhetoric hinted at. So, Ali, on the Republican side, we had another nice press-friendly Civil War narrative going on. We had a much bigger field of candidates, but one of them was endorsed by Donald Trump. And he's a wonderful man. I've known him for a long time. Mike Carey. Mike, where are you, Mike? Where is Mike? The last Donald Trump-endorsed candidate uh, lost, so everyone was looking to see if that would happen again. The Trump person won in this race. What does that race tell us about the Republican Party? So... 
I think by looking at on this Democratic side, you know, we saw the Democratic establishment strike back, right? Like they put up a fight against their, you know, progressive wing and they found support and they found resources and, and they, you know, have, have successfully reined it in. There's almost the opposite happening on the Republican side, right? The Republican Party is racing to the extreme. It's becoming completely wrapped up by Trump. And there is no GOP establishment to speak of that's trying to rein it in unless you look at, you know, the Adam Kinzinger's or the Liz Cheney's who are very conservative in terms of their, you know, ideological views, but are anti-Trump and are just cast out. So when we look at this Ohio special election, Mike Carey was endorsed by Trump. Mike, you got to win, Mike. Yes, sir. And, you know, ran away with it. There was no strong establishment pushback here. Steve Stivers, the former incumbent of that seat, um, who knows, you know, very well the impact that Trump has had on the party. He was the NRCC chairman in 2018 when Republicans lost the House. He was backing uh, uh, state lawmaker Jeff Luray, who, you know, certainly was by no means anti-Trump, but was perhaps more of an establishment pick. And, uh, you know, the final vote was Mike Carey, 37%. Jeff Luray was next with you know, 13 So to the extent that, like, there's still a desire to throw the establishment out, move towards Trump, I think, like, that sentiment is very strong in the Republican Party. Like, when we look at the Tea Party and the last time we saw this big wave of new Republican members coming into Congress, like, they were united by at least sort of like a rough policy framework, right? Uh, small government, low taxes. And this wave that we've seen since Trump took office, and there have been a ton of open seats since Trump took office because so many of these Republicans who didn't feel like they fit in in the Trump era, you know, voted with their feet or, or retired. And those people, when they come in, are, you know, the, they win primaries by their ties to Trump. That's why the Trump endorsement is so important. And it's why we see people like not just Marjorie Taylor Greene, but Byron Donalds, Andrew Clyde, Barry Moore. Some of these sort of like lesser known Republican members were able to point to times that they'd met Trump, pictures they had with Trump, um, you know, early endorsees of Trump. Barry, Barry Moore claims to be the first elected official in the country to endorse Trump. That was a, a big selling point in, in his race. And I think that was what Mike Carey did here. You lean on the Trump endorsement and you write it out. And as a result, you have a whole group, a whole class of people in Congress whose you know, single most animating issue is how can I support the president in whatever he does? And it's just changed the character of the Republican Party in Congress. You lost a lot of longtime members like Steve Stivers, who are replaced with people who are more uh, Trump-centric in style and, and ideology. Yeah. I feel like so much of what these special elections and off-year elections are about is the post-election spin war, you know, and so for and the de on the Democratic side, it's progressives trying to look at these races and say, aha, maybe we didn't win this one, but here's why, you know, going forward, this is the direction the party should go in. And as we gear up towards 2022 and the, the midterms, you know, Democrats need to lean into the Sanders worldview. On the other side, as we were talking about before, and, I've, and I'm sure you've been getting a lot of emails and texts from people trying to spin you on this, you have a lot of 
Biden-esque moderates establishment types in Washington and elsewhere saying, see, this is, you know, you got to stick close to Biden. You got to stick close to not just his message and not just him, but those policies, because even in these primaries, there are more voters in, in the center than on the left. And it's really kind of a an ongoing fight for resources going forward and who's going to control the messaging at the DCCC and the DNC. And I, I feel like the moderates are feeling pretty good right now based on, on New York City and these two special elections. Uh, and then on the other side, on the Republican side, of course, right, same thing. Trump is just looking to build a record of when I endorse someone, you know, good things happen for the Republican Party. Uh, others, you know, Maybe we'll use Mitch McConnell as the avatar for that wing of the party who hate Trump and want him to go away, uh, are just, you know, hoping his his candidates leave because it's really about, you know, resources and messaging next year. There'll be a few more of these races before we get into 2022. But like, what's your sort of big picture conclusion about the leverage these two wings in the Democratic Party have right now, given the results of the races that have happened since uh, the presidential race was decided? I, I think this was such an important race for progressives on the Democratic side in Ohio, because like you mentioned, they've had so many losses in the Biden era, and it hasn't been going on that long. And we talk about this a lot you know, on, on our campaign team here, but redistricting is this immense opportunity for any wing of the party that wants to build um, its ranks in Congress because it creates new seats, new open seats, and it makes incumbents more vulnerable if they get new territory um, that they're not as familiar in. It weakens that power of incumbency. And so for progressives, this is this is a huge cycle for them. It could be if they can take advantage of all of the like political shifting that's going to go uh, along with new maps. But they really need momentum both to get candidates to step up and to convince donors that it's worth donating and, and investing. And so this is kind of the last big democratic race for a while, um, certainly before we get new lines. And so I think they missed a chance to really add some more like momentum and juice to the cycle ahead of it. And on the Republican side, I think it confirmed what we already know, which is that you know Trump is still king in the party. He still has a lot of sway. Um, and he's he is remaking Congress, you know, over and over again. People say, you know, the endorsement is all Trump has now that he's out of office. But if his endorsements translate to Trump acolytes coming into these sort of like safe new Republican seats, then he does still have an impact, a really tangible impact on Congress because he's growing that flavor of lawmaker inside the House. The progressives have a really good uh, megaphone with uh, social media and the internet. And they're really effective at reaching elites. And given the, you know, the kind of people who are on Twitter, they sometimes their influence in the party seems a little bit exaggerated. So I feel like there is a class of, of uh, political people who are always a little surprised when like, you know, the Sanders wing doesn't doesn't have another glorious victory. Like, wait a second, I, you know, if I if I if I go on Twitter, it's all about AOC and, and the squad. Like, why isn't that uh, translating? Do you think there is as big a gap when you're out there on the ground covering these races 
you know, between the outside the beltway on the ground world and the social media world, which is obviously so convenient and easy to plug into, but can be warping in our sense as reporters about like which side in this <laughs> in this ongoing civil war has the edge and sort of how as reporters we, you know, make sure we're not getting mixed up by that. You make a good point. Spending less time on Twitter is is always helpful in understanding a race. I will say like door knocking with Nina Turner in places that were definitely not, you know, like elite or upscale parts of the district. People knew who she was mm -hmm. and they were, you know, flustered. Oh my gosh. I know who you are. They would bring up Medicare for all. Like they would bring up some of the things that she stood for. And I could tell that there was real support for her and, and like what she was doing and that that wasn't necessarily just like elite or progressive buy-in. And, and like I mentioned, like the ads against her really were not attacking those progressive ideas. Like I do think there is base support for those ideas. I think this was just, they packaged things that people don't like of her trashing the Democratic Party, of her saying that, you know, she couldn't vote for Joe Biden. And, and, and that I think turned a lot of people off more so than like, was she too progressive? Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent point. Well, and then I guess just big picture, it's like, I mean, the simplest way to look at these two primaries is the Biden candidate won and the Trump candidate won. So yeah. you know, the two most popular figures, it's good to be aligned with the most popular figure in your party is one lesson from these these two races. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Allie, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll see you in the newsroom one of these days whenever we all get back there. Yeah, sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Amint. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll take you behind the scenes of Capitol Hill again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. Thank you for listening.